Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books in German Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Michikanis, the host of today's podcast, and today we'll be talking to Professor Sarah Colvin about her new book, Shadowland, the story of Germany told by its prisoners. Sarah Colvin is the Schroeder Professor of German at the University of Cambridge. She's also the author of Ulrike Meinhof and West German Terrorism, Language, Violence and Identity, Women and German Drama, Playwrights and Their Texts, and numerous articles in academic journals. Professor Colvin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a fascinating story. And I'm wondering, before we even jump into kind of the content, could you tell us how this project came to be? How you were interested in the story of Germany's prison system and how this combined with your work? Sure thing. Well, it came from the project on Rick Meinhof. You mentioned the book on Meinhof and German terrorism. And a big part of that project was looking at the terrorists in prison. And when that was done, I was already asking myself, okay, so it's one thing to be a high profile in in sort of inverted commas political prisoner um, and to be visited by Jean-Paul Sartre and have letters from Amnesty International written on your behalf. That is one thing. What happens to the rest? What is going on for everyone else? Um, the people who are regular prisoners. So, so that's where it came from. And the focus in the book is very much on regular people in prison. It's not on the high profile prisons. It's not on the ones who did particularly gruesome crimes. Some of those people are in the mix, but it, it's it's the regular people, the everyday people in prison. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what stood out to me with this book is that you immediately jump in and it's not a legal history. It's not a bureaucratic history. This is from that perspective. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the process of combining or compiling all these sources took and how this came to be? Sure. So, yeah, I think what's unusual about the book is that it's not top down, it's bottom up. Uh, and it is told as much as I could in the words of people in prison. Um, and it's certainly from their perspective. And reading the sources determined which topics I pursued. Um, and I let the, the materials tell me which way to go. Um, and that is then also, it's a bottom-up perspective on prisons that makes it a bottom-up perspective on Germany. Um And the first response that you get often from people in prison is, this is not the country I thought it was. That moment of shock on entering prison, this isn't the nation I believed I was in. The second response, which comes a little later, is the structures and the values in here, in this prison, look to me like an intensified or concentrated version of life outside. And you find that people who've worked in prisons for extended periods and people who've been incarcerated really often use the notion of the microcosm. So prison, not as something completely different from society outside, but prison as a microcosmic version of society outside. So my starting point was to think, well, if that is the case, and it it 
looked very much like it was if prison is an intensified version of society maybe people in prison have something to tell me to tell us that we really need to listen to and then after that there was a question of process which you raised and one of the issues is that this is a very vulnerable population that it's really comfortable and we like to think about people in prison as dangerous people and some of them are but what all of them are is vulnerable people. Um, to be in prison is to be radically vulnerable. And so I didn't want to be in the business of exposing people. So I chose to use material that was already in the public sphere. I don't think there is anything in the book that was not already in the public sphere and that entered the public sphere pretty much with, with the knowledge of the person who produced it. Um, and while I was working, I did, as a reality check, I, I worked in prisons. I went in with arts projects and educational projects and spoke with people in prison in Germany and in the UK. Uh, and I've worked for years now with an organisation in the UK called the National Criminal Justice Arts Alliance, which is an umbrella organisation for all of the people who work on educational arts projects in prison. And so I was in conversation with my colleagues. And all of that was a really important reality check on what I was assuming and thinking from the writing I was reading, but I didn't use it to collect material. That wasn't a way of collecting material. I collected material that was already out there. Um, and in fact, what I discovered was that there's an enormous amount out there. It's often not really being noticed, um, but particularly in West Germany, particularly in the 70s and 80s, there's a huge amount of published writing from prison. There's academics and writers going into prison, speaking to prisoners, encouraging them to write. There are writing competitions um, and awards, enormous amounts of material, much less obviously in East Germany, um, but nonetheless, some accounts getting out and being published in the West. And then after 1989, uh, a real interest in publishers in the unified federal, federal republic after 1990 in publishing accounts from prison. So there's all kinds of interesting stuff from emerges from it as well, which is when is a reading public outside interested in reading stuff that comes out of prisons? And so, you know, choosing the material that was in the public sphere gave me that information as well. And yeah, there was, there was a huge amount of it. There was certainly plenty to work with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in comparing and contrasting Eastern and, and Western German experiences in prison. But let's let's jump right in. So you you start your book um, in the post-World War period in November 1945. And we have the Amgus um, Directive that deals with German prisons. And could you talk a little bit about or describe for the audience, what did the prison system look like in the wake of Germany's defeat after World War II? And what were some of the problems that occupational forces experienced? when they were trying to rebuild a prison system and let alone a country after the Second World War. Sure, yes. So so Ongus is just for, for people who haven't come across it before, is the Office of the Military Government of the United States, which was coordinating the Allied forces um, in Germany after the war. And yeah, I think this is a really fascinating moment, this moment in 1945 where Germany has surrendered and the Allied forces have to secure Germany's prisons. Um, and if you imagine doing it in the chaos that was Germany post-surrender, this was different from securing, from, from liberating the concentration camps. Um, 
prisons were secure facilities that had to stay secure. Um, they weren't going to be liberated. Uh, in the first instance, the Allies had to try and then work out as quickly as possible who in there was in there, who according to their values should be in custody. Um, some, of course, in the chaos had already flown the coop, um, but everyone else had to be evaluated. And then after that, they had to work out who was fit to be a custodian for these people in custody. So what was the level of involvement in the Nazi state of the prison governors, of the guards, and who could stay and who had to go? And if people had to go, who are you going to replace them with? Um, because you need a certain number of custodians in a prison to keep it secure. So really complex issues. And then quite aside from that, once you have people in prison, they need to be provided for, they need food, they need heat. And outside in Germany, shortages, hunger, lack of fuel everywhere. So how did you get it into a prison? So a kind of unimaginably difficult task, in fact, that the Allies were facing. Mm -hmm. In your research, did you find any sort of large differences between, say, American occupational zones or French occupational zones when it came to custodians and trying to staff these prisons? There were some differences. So in the different zones, these weren't prison systems in the zones. These were interim measures. Um, this was kind of caretaking uh, for the period of time until prisons could be handed back to a newly established German government, whatever shape that was going to take. And in the first in instance, so Ongus had a couple of priorities and it issued this directive, Directive 19. And the idea was, first of all, you need to reestablish the proper rule of law. Um, so sentences have to correspond to crimes. Prisoners have to be treated legitimately. And then, secondly, they wanted to refocus on rehabilitation, which was something had got, that had really got lost as a purpose of prison um, under Nazi penal law. Uh, and to focus on making people in prison fit to re-enter society again. That was pretty much consistent across the zones. The Russian zone was different because there the Soviet military authority brought in the Soviet secret police um, and they established prison camps. And the people who survived the camps tell stories of torture, um, of extremely brutal methods. There was a very high death rate in the camps from tuberculosis from injury, there was a very high rape rate for women in the camps. And actually about 50,000 people in the Soviet camps got deported to the USSR for hard labor. Um, so in that sense, the difference, and then also some small differences, you know, for example, in the American sector, a very large number of people who were custodians in prisons lost their jobs. In other sectors, it was less large numbers. In some other sectors, for example, in the French sector, people were employed to fill the gaps who'd lost their jobs in the American sector. So you know, there, there was shifting around. And you know, I think one has to say this with a great understanding of the extraordinary pressures that everyone was working under at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and this, this brings us to kind of an interesting question of um, in German history, there's an effort to try to understand what were the continuities after the First World, excuse me, the Second World War, and what was different. And you argue that uh, actually the penal system had a lot of continuity rather than change. And so I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about um, what continuities existed from the Third Reich into the post-war period when it comes to the penal system. Sure. Um, 
so yeah, and obviously it's not one of the curious things about this book is that it's it's rarely me arguing, it's the people in prison arguing. So the people who are telling their stories argue for continuity, not change. And in German history now, I think it's very widely accepted that this idea of the Stunde Null, of the zero hour after World War II, is a bit of a myth. Um, there was no clean slate. There was no starting again from scratch. There was managing a messy transition um, into a new kind of state or indeed two new different kinds of states. And in that situation, the prisoner stories say there were subjective continuities from the Nazi state. There are also, however, one can track some objective continuities. And one that, that stands out, for example, is paragraph 175 in German law, um, which is the paragraph that criminalised homosexuality. Um, and the Allies obviously couldn't make up an entirely new criminal code overnight. You know, what happens to criminal law when a state that's now regarded as criminal is overthrown? Um, and what they did was they kept, in essence, the criminal code that had existed under the Nazis, which drew on previous criminal codes, they took out some of the more appalling details that the Nazi has introduced, but things remained. And one of the things that remained was paragraph 175, which meant that after 1945, after 1949, when the new West German state was established, the Federal Republic, there were still men in prison for having consensual sex. Uh, which is an objective continuity, which feeds then um, a sense of, of mistrust of the new Germany in people in prison. That, you know, if you are adopting these inhuman laws from a previous time that criminalise men who have sex as adults consensually, then how can you say you are an entirely different state? You participate in the guilt of the previous state. So, yeah, there's that's objective continuity feeds sense of subjective continuity. Lots of stories about authoritarianism in prisons, um, arbitrary brutality, unregulated punishment in the system, disregard for human rights. And the message that's coming really strongly from people in prison is that all of this is still happening after mm -hmm. 1945. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, and this is, I mean, it's some of the accounts are just harrowing in terms of what people are experiencing. And I actually want to draw up on this theme of kind of a vulnerable population, because you also talk about this term of rebel children and how this feeds into um, almost a continuous cycle of people who aren't aware of what they should do and end up kind of becoming part of the institution and struggle to readapt once they get out. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more for our readers about this idea of rebel children and how this ties into that larger question of what the post-war vision looked like in the aftermath and what people were supposed to do to survive. Yeah, sure. I mean, rubble children, it's, 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 it's easy enough to imagine the kids picking through the rubble after the end of the war, looking for food, looking for objects, looking for ways to get by. Um, but it's really important in this context, because many of the stories that get told by people in prison in the 1960s, in the 1970s, is that they became stamped as criminals. They started their criminal careers as children after World War II. Um, and, and, you know, how does that happen after a war? Well, poverty and unemployment are major causes of crime. Wars are major causes of poverty 
and unemployment. Um, so after a war, there is almost bound to be a crime wave. People have to eat. If they can't buy or grow enough food to survive, they will steal. If they can't survive where they are, they'll move around. And at this time, vagrancy is still a crime. Um, so one can build up a criminal record for being a vagrant. And it affects the children because, as in other countries, children were evacuated in Germany during the war. They were sent from the cities to places in the country that were perceived to be safe, safer, unlike the other countries where there was an orderly system for getting them back to their homes after the war. Germany couldn't do that. Germany was the collapsed nation. And so most of the children had to make their own way home. Um, and some of them took years. Some of them didn't manage it. And obviously, the process of getting there required survival one way or another. Um, some children ended up lost. Some children were already orphaned. Some people, children had been left behind by their families who were heading west, running away from the soldiers coming in from the east. And you get these groups that emerge that have come to be called wolf children. Um, and the wolf children live in packs. Um, they survive by pretty brutal acts. One of them tells a story of capturing a young German woman and selling her to a Russian soldier. Um, so they steal, they go into villages and take what they can. They get treated pretty brutally by the adults. Um, and one of them apparently is Werner Glado, who was the, he liked to think of himself as the Al Capone of, of East Berlin in the post-war period. Uh, so a young, young man who was executed in uh, 1950 when the newly established East Germany was beheaded, uh, had previously led a gang of, of criminal young people. Uh, yeah, you can, you can see how it happened. Mm -hmm. One, it also raises another interesting question of you, we hear about the economic miracle, the Wirtschaftswunder for West Germany, and you see that this is actually a very interesting perspective where not everybody benefited from that. If you were in prison, you didn't get to accumulate that wealth, and so it was very easy to become institutionalized as a result of that after you get out, and what are you supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the people who didn't get a part in the economic miracle, you come out of prison as well, and it takes very little time for your prospective employer to find out that you're a former prisoner. Mm -hmm. um, and at that moment, so many stories of people immediately losing their jobs. So mm -hmm. how were they going to get by? How were they going to be part of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not all bad because you also talk about individuals like Brigitte Wolf, who is a champion of reform. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of these champions of reform, particularly in West Germany, and what they're motivated by, a little bit about their background and how they begin to try to educate the public on just what is happening in these prison systems. For sure. Yeah. And that's important because in, it's a harrowing story, but it's not only a harrowing story. And there are moments in the story that are really powerfully about hope. And there is this period um, in West Germany, in the Federal Republic, um, from about 1949 up into the late 1970s, where there are huge hopes of, of reform in the prison. And Birgitta Wolf, who you mentioned, is an amazing character. She's just remarkable. So she was born in Sweden uh, and was Duchess from Rosen. And her aunt had married Hermann Göring. So her aunt was married to the guy who founded the Gestapo. Um, and Wolf herself married a German, 
uh, and moved to the Black Forest, and that was 1933. So she found herself in Germany as a relative of Hermann Göring in 1933. And what she chose to do was to use that relationship because it protected her to try and help people in prison and to try and advocate for people in prison. Um, and she took some quite significant risks. At one point, quite near the end of the war, she hid three Jewish women in her home. Um, and as soon as the war was over, she came out as a reformer, as a really prominent campaigner. And she was different from some campaigners because she was in very active conversation with people in prison. In the course of her lifetime, she exchanged thousands of letters uh, with people in prison. And so part of her campaign was we have to listen to that voice when we talk about reform. So Wolf, this remarkable person, but there were others. There was Ingeborg Drewitz, um, the writer, playwright. And now the Ingeborg Drewitz Prize is the big prize in Germany for prison writing um, and is awarded every couple of years. And there was a prison governor, another remarkable person, Helga Einzler. Um, Helga Einzler had trained as a lawyer but was banned from working as a lawyer in Nazi Germany because of her political views. Um, and so she and her family kind of hid out in Austria, in a very remote part of Austria for most of the war. And she came back after the war to become governor of the women's prison in Frankfurt, Poingersheim, which was quite quickly known to be one of the most progressive women's prisons in Germany. And she established Germany's first mother baby unit. Very remarkable person. And then, of course, Gustav Heinemann. Heinemann, who was in Adenauer's cabinet, uh, after the war was Minister of the Interior, later joined the SPD and was Minister of Justice under Brandt. Um, so some, some very remarkable, engaged people who wanted a prison system that actively enabled people to return into society. And their pragmatic rationale was the way to make society a safe place is to enable people to come back in, in a way, that will integrate them. Um, and so back in 1933, one of the very first things the Nazis did was to dissolve the working group that already existed for penal reform. And after the war in 1947, that working group reconvenes with some of the same people. Um, and it works for a number of years to draft a new penal code for the Federal Republic. And things go back and forth and are delayed um, but eventually it's 1976 uh, and the new penal code comes in. And then there's the question, did it, for, did it meet the hopes? Did it do what had been hoped? Um, and that's, that, that's a different question, but it happened. Uh, and, and, you know, a huge amount of work went into that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm wondering, could you could you explain a little bit? It's it, it's not until, like you said, Billy Brown's government and, and Gustav Heinemann is appointed yeah. that we actually get these things. Why was there such a delay in in trying to reform the system, and yeah. why why did it take until 1969 to actually get the gears of bureaucracy moving to make this a reality? Yeah, well, because German history was happening at the same time. So you know, Brand comes into government and is all about participatory democracy. And very interestingly, the whole approach to prisons at that time is about more participatory democracy in the prison, um, more participation in the governance of the prison by people in prison. So everything is moving kind of in the same direction. Um, but then Prandt runs up against the Guillaume affair, 
um, and has to resign. And so there's a bump um, and that bump sets everything back and the process has to be sort of reinvigorated. So, so you know, I think that that's always going to be the case. And I'm very familiar with it in this country as well, in prison work, that everything changes the minute something changes in government and you start again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that's, that's kind of what happened, happened in Germany. It wasn't starting again, but it, it was a setback. So history happens as well. Other aspects in history happen. Uh, and, and changes in, in prison regulation run along with what's happening politically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, because we, we don't get until the Schmidt government that major reforms are carried out. Well, in contrast to West Germany here, what do the conditions look like in East Germany? And could you explain a little bit? Um, you know, we talked about how Brigitte Wolf and others, they're motivated by this, um, This you talk about it in the book, they're motivated by the German constitution and human dignity. What is the prison philosophy in East Germany look like? And could you explain a little bit about what the inmates experienced there and major differences between the two Germanies? Yeah, it's different. So. I would say it is absolutely standard in every country that regards itself as, as a decent kind of state that there is a gap between prison theory and prison practice. That's really normal. So we, we hope for one set of things to happen and on the ground a different set of things happen. That was really extreme in East Germany. So East Germany set out to create a model prison system as part of the process of creating a model state. Um, what comes out is truly appalling. I mean, reading about prison tends to be appalling. Reading about prison in East Germany is exceptionally appalling. There is overcrowding everywhere on both sides of the wall, so all prisons are overcrowded. But East Germany is an extremely carceral state which means that for about two thirds of the offences you can commit, you'll be sent to prison. Um, so very high chance um, of being imprisoned once you're criminalised. Um, and once you're in prison, the approach is very disciplinarian. People had what was called an Erzieher, where Erzieher has this disciplinarian overtone. It's, it's you know somebody who brings a child up but, but by implication, brings a child up strictly. Um, and it's a very punitive system. And there are stories of people being chained to the floor uh, when they had what's called knast collar, so an, an attack of cabin fever in prison. Um, brutal orchestrated beatings where prison officers would join together to beat a prisoner pretty much to a pulp. Um, punishment cells. Different kinds of punishment cells include a dark cell, where you could be put in for days at a time in darkness um, on bread and water. Then a standing cell, which is a cell which it's only big enough to stand in. Um, difficult to imagine what that must become like very quickly. And then the water cells, um, which many people outside of prison in West in East Germany said, you know, they didn't believe him. And those who then saw them are shocked that these things they thought were just a rumour really exist. So the water cells, you find yourself inside um, and the cell is empty, but it can be filled with water up to about the height of your hip. And the water can be left there so that you're standing in it. 
um, which means that, you know, if you have to go to the toilet, that's what's going to happen in the water that you're standing in, possibly for hours at a time. And then it can be let out and it's cold water and then it can be let in again. So these, you know, extraordinary measures in place, particularly in the earlier days of the GDR, less later on. And a lot of people in prison who've been imprisoned for crimes against the state. Um, so what, you know, what loosely get called political prisoners, the GDR, of course, did not officially hold political prisoners. Um, but there were crimes against the state. And inside the prison system, there is a strong belief that crime would not exist in a perfect socialist state. And therefore, people who commit crimes against the state are personally responsible for the continued existence of crime and prisons. And their treatment reflects that. And, and, you know, people tell stories of arriving into a prison and the prison officers were waiting to beat them up because they were those people. They were the scum who were maintaining crime in this state that would otherwise be perfect. So, you know, that going on. Um, and I think as a particular kind of mental torture, prisoners reporting the complete lack of information. So if I go to prison now, I expect to know what exactly I've been sentenced for, what exactly my sentence is, if it's a prison sentence, how long I'm going to serve for and what the conditions are for an earlier release. None of that in East Germany. Um, Lack of information was actively used as a as a mode of control. Um, so there is there is you know added to the physical tribulations, the mental tribulation of being completely in the dark about when this might end. Uh, might you be released or might you be put in solitary confinement for a period of years, and nobody will feel the need to offer you an explanation why. Um, so yeah, difficult and and very grueling conditions mm -hmm. in the East. Well, and, and what stood out to me in reading this is just crimes are, are, are even something as, you know, Republic Flüchte, leading, leaving the Republic, these crimes that are that are orchestrated against people, there's no escape from these things. Um, you talk a little bit about how some laws change, for example, like the death penalty is abolished, not until 1987 in East Germany. Were there any sort of prison reform movements in East Germany, obviously not to the degree in West Germany, or was, was it pretty static over the course of the German Democratic, uh, the Republic of the German Democratic Republic's history. Yeah, so interesting with what you say. So, so some people in prison refer to the GDR as the big prison. So you're in prison within a prison that you can't get out of. But prison reform movements from the ground up, no, because I don't think that would have been tolerated. There was um, a reform of penal law. Uh, but what it tended to do was tighten up things like a public flucht leaving the Republic um, and you know, tighten up the laws and conditions. It, it wasn't something that relaxed the carceral nature of the state. So in West Germany, when the reforms come in, part of the impetus is towards putting fewer people in prison. Um, that doesn't happen in the East. In the East, curiously, every few years you get a general amnesty and loads of people are released from prison, often when there's extreme overcrowding, um, and that, that becomes a necessary thing to do, but normally tied to some political event or celebration. Um, 
but no concerted effort to reduce the kind of punitive nature of the state, the castral nature of the state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, as we move forward, then we see in the face of German reunification, there's a lot of possibility, there's a lot of optimism. And you talk a little bit about um, the debates and the resulting legislation that eventually in 2006 seems to kind of decentralize penal authority to the various uh, Bundesländer. Could you talk a little bit about what this means? De- you know, decentralizing the authority means the states have the, the option to kind of exercise how they want to. But what did this look like in different states in Germany in the face of reunification? Yeah, so in 1945, you get this moment when a new start seems possible. And then in 1989, again, you get this moment when a new start seems possible. Um, And is that new start going to be reflected uh, in prisons? And the very first thing that happens is that across the entire unified federal republic, um, West German law becomes valid uh, and East German law disappears and a lot of the judges have to retire but then in 2006, there's a gradual build up to this, but there's a legislative reform in unified Germany. And the big change is that penal law, as you said, becomes a state matter, Ländersache, and is, and is locally organised. And the states were required to create um, their own penal codes. Uh, and some of them did it really quickly. And as a kind of general rule of thumb, it was the more conservative states that jumped in and did it really quickly. And some did it more slowly. And the whole process took about 10 years. And it wasn't consistent uh, until about 2016, when the the last states came in and organised themselves. And what was different was that quite day-to-day things became negotiable state by state. So the state can now decide how often a prisoner gets day release. The state can decide how many prisons should be open prisons and how many prisons should be closed prisons. The state can decide how many visits a prisoner can get in a month. And all of those things sound potentially minor, but actually they're pretty major. And it means that your experience of being in prison in Germany now depends really quite heavily on where you're in prison, which means where you registered your lodging. You know that in Germany you have to register formally where you live. Yeah, so so if you're planning a crime, think carefully about this um, because your experience of prison will depend on where your registered address is. And it means, you know, for example, if you're in prison in Berlin, uh, you have much higher chance of being in an open prison. Uh, which means you have a much lower chance of experiencing violence in prison. Open prisons are way less violent than closed prisons, so this is a big deal. Uh, it has a significant impact on how often or you'll get day release or whether you'll get it at all, so whether you can go back to your family, reconnect with people, um, and it'll have a significant impact on how, how often you get a visit. And so you know, there are questions being raised now, like you know, is justice in Germany now about geography? Um, and, you know, one can see why. And under COVID, uh, the different states dealt differently with the COVID regulations. And again, huge differences in people's experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Colvin, you've been very generous with your time. So just one more question to, to kind of wrap this up here. One of the most powerful things you talk about in the end of the book is this, um, this idea of understanding the penal system means understanding arbitrariness. 
I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. You know, what did arbitrariness look like to some prisoners from the time of the Third Reich to the Federal Republic to the German Democratic Republic? And what, what did you mean by that when you were reading these accounts and people were recounting these ideas? Sure. And it's a particularly important term in Germany. So arbitrariness understood as the opposite of legitimacy. And in post-war Germany, as you know, the idea of the Reichsstaat, the legitimate state, the state that is not arbitrary in its practices, becomes incredibly important. Um, particularly in the Federal Republic, it has to be seen as a Reichsstaat. Um, so arbitrariness is a, is a massively important concept. And prison, if you think about it, prison is a highly controlled environment under the rule of law, which means theoretically, what happens in prison should be completely legitimate, um, at least from the side of the officers. Um, and people in prison should not be beaten by officers, but the stories are saying that they are, and people in prison shouldn't be exposed to beatings and abuse from other people in prison in ways that officers collude and tolerate but stories from prison say they are. People in prison shouldn't be racially abused by officers, but the stories from prison say they are. People from prison shouldn't be subject to medical neglect and other kinds of negligence that lead to their deaths, um, but the stories from prison say they are. So the problem of arbitrary practices in what needs to be a legitimate system is a really significant problem. And yeah, I guess that that leads to the question what, what this is telling us about Germany. Uh, and it, what it's telling us about Germany in particular. And I think it's really important to say, and I emphasise at the beginning of the book, that the Federal Republic of Germany is not worse in its treatment of people in prison than, for example, the United Kingdom or the United States. In fact, it is better. Um, the Federal Republic now is a less carceral state. They hold fewer people in prison proportionally than the UK or the US. In Germany, if you're a German citizen, you can vote. They have better human rights in prison. And nonetheless, even in this system that is, you know, moderately OK seen in the global context, people in prison are telling us that Germany is not the country they thought it was. And people in prison are telling us that Germany is not living up to its own post-war narrative. And this is something I find really interesting from the historical perspective is what's the narrative? Um, and what does this particular viewpoint say about lived reality for at least one section of the population? And there are recent stories from prisons which are also reported in the press about neo-Nazi activity among prison officers. There are stories about deaths in custody of black people in prison and people of colour. Uh, and there are stories of the widespread incapacity still even now of the system to deal with the fact that women have children um, and, and have children in a physical way that needs to be dealt with. Um, and those things are true not only in Germany. And I guess for me, that's important, too, that in one way, this is a, a history of Germany told from a particular perspective. But in another way, this is a view on an aspect of all societies. And 
it's telling us things that aren't only true in the German context. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Coleman. Shadowland, the story of Germany told by its prisoners will be available later this month on Amazon and where all major books are sold. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Coleman. Thank you so much for having me. Really Mm -hmm. nice to talk to you. No, it was a pleasure. And this is a fascinating book. We didn't even get to dive into some of the other issues. I mean, there are issues of gender and race and other um, very fascinating questions that are being analyzed here. I highly recommend the book. And uh, thank you very much.